Welcome to Phone Messages, episode 168, Brian's Instruments. My name is Paul Mason Foch. This week, I play message number 11 from Brian Amelia. The message is three seconds long and comes from the spring of 1990. Here we go. Paul, this is Brian. All I said was, Paul, this is Brian. I got nothing to go on there. Well, let me ask you something. How did you start playing violin? Oh, I was in Suzuki violin when I was, like, young, first grade. Suzuki violin was, like, it's ear training. You play mostly by listening to recordings, not so much by reading sheet music. You know, I had cassettes, and I'd listen to them over and over, and that's mostly how you learn the song. I went from Suzuki violin to Suzuki piano, and that's when I was getting up into, like, fifth or sixth grade, and all of a sudden playing music wasn't that cool. I once got in a fist fight over this guy called me a sissy because I had a violin. What age was that? I believe that was in third grade. So did you quit after that? Uh, not too long after that, yeah. You held on to the violin, obviously, even though you quit. Yeah, and the first time I picked it up was when I played with you. You hadn't played since third grade, and then you just picked it up? Fourth grade. I quit violin in fourth grade. Fifth grade, I played piano. And sixth grade, I started saxophone and played saxophone till eighth grade. When about when did you pick up the guitar? My one buddy's dad was kind of a professional musician and more a professional drunk, but he played saxophone. So I had a saxophone. So when he heard that and he'd pawned off his saxophone, so he didn't have one. And he's like, oh, yeah, bring it over. We'll have a jam. And so that was the first time I got introduced to kind of the jam, like, oh, we're in the room. And I actually played, he had an old Wurlitzer pianet. So I was playing that, and he was playing the saxophone, and his older son, Tom, was playing bass. Well, I started with the Wurlitzer, but it was kind of out of tune, and it's very hard to tune. You have to drop solder and file it down. It's a very intricate process. That's why I haven't played it in a long time. So then they had a guitar on site. I started playing that because at least I could tune it. And I went back after freshman year of college and I was like I'd really like to find that old jam guitar and it only had two strings left on it not even in a case just sitting in the corner of the garage so Pete Newcomb the guy from my football team it was his older brother's guitar and I asked him how much he wanted for it he said uh, $25 I was like I know a little bit about guitars and it's a Gretsch and old it's actually worth way more than $25. I was like, I'll give you $50. So that's my karmic thing I did in life. That's the only thing I've ever given somebody more money than they asked for in my life. And it still plays like its neck is never warped. I had a second electric guitar, but it, there was poor moments raising the kids, and that one went to the pawn shop. But I always kept the Gretsch. What about your violin? It's a copy of a Stradivarius. That's pretty much all it tells you on the inside. 
and it's probably from 1890 or so. Where did your mom get it? It was her grandfather's. It, it was brought from Germany. So what about your saxophone? What happened to that? That was an Armstrong saxophone from Elkhart, Indiana. It, that was a nice piece, too. And yeah, that factory long ago closed. So in a way, that was collector's item in its own right. The pawn shop, I think they gave me 50 bucks for it. But at moments in life, you know, sometimes you need the 50 bucks. Yeah, it was dead of winter. We needed food, and the kids were young and hungry. So away went the saxophone. With Brian's musical talent and his instrument collection, he could be a jam band instructor, like the music man's Harold Hill, who also got his start in Rock Island, Illinois. Let's review each piece in his ensemble, beginning with the violin. Stradivarius fakes are shockingly common. Going back to the 18th century, when Stradivari was still living, artisans sometimes mislabeled their instruments in order to profit from another's reputation. In the early 20th century, one could buy a supposedly genuine Stradivarius from the Sears catalog for just $2.50. In the 19th century, most of these copies were made in Mark Neukirch in Germany, which is probably the source for Brian's fiddle. Brian's Armstrong alto saxophone was manufactured in Elkhart, Indiana which became a center for band instruments when Charles Kahn set up shop there in 1875, taking advantage of its multiple railroad connections. The W.T. Armstrong Company began in 1931 with a focus on flutes and piccolos, but by the 1980s had branched out into making saxophones. The company became part of United Musical Instruments in 1985, which was acquired by Steinway in 2000. Currently, one can find Armstrong Altos for sale online for a couple hundred dollars, which is about what they cost in classified ads from the early 2000s when Brian had to liquidate his in order to feed the family. The Gretsch guitar Brian bought for 50 bucks was the Corvette model in cherry red mahogany. Like the car, it was meant to look fast and sporty. The German immigrant Friedrich Gretsch started his Brooklyn-based business in 1883 with a focus on percussion, and the company began making guitars in the 1930s. The Corvette was the company's first solid body model and came out in 1961. The 1968 version, which Brian owns, had an original list price of $225. I could not find any listings for the Corvette in classified ads from the 1980s, so it is difficult to say what it was worth when Brian bought it. Right now, Corvettes can be found for sale in the 1500 range. 
The true gem in Brian's collection is the Wurlitzer electric piano. As a German immigrant to Cincinnati, Rudolf Wurlitzer started out in 1856 importing instruments from Europe. He began manufacturing his own pianos in 1880. The Wurlitzer Company released its first electric piano in 1954, intending it to be an affordable instrument for students and classrooms. Ads from the 1950s promoted its portability, since it weighed only 68 pounds. The Whirly's compact design led Ray Charles to begin touring with it in 1956. Wurlitzer came out with an even more lightweight version in 1968, this time with a plastic top. Its retail price of $485 made it by far the company's best-selling keyboard, and it remains popular today among artists like Nora Jones. If Brian is able to repair his pianet, the Wurlitzer 200, which sold for under $500 when it was new, can now fetch between five and 7000 smackaroos. Well, that's Antique Roadshow for this week. If you have a vintage musical instrument with a story, please contact me at pfoch.com. That's P-F-O-T-S-C-H dot com. Many thanks to Brian for laying down his groove. And thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.